I sure hope you're hungry. Ooh, I'm starving. Wash those hands, pull up a chair, and secure that feed bag. Because it's time to listen to Scott Talinsky and Wes Boss attempt to use human language to converse with and pick the brains of other developers. I thought there was going to be food. So buckle up and grab that old handle, because this ride is going to get wild. This is the Syntax Supper Club. Welcome to Syntax. This is the Syntax Supper Club. And today we're going to be talking about DX. And I'm not talking about Degeneration X. I'm talking about developer experience with Sean Wang here. And we're going to be talking all about Sean's new project as well as just developer experience in general. What the heck it is, why you should care about it, and just the overview. And we'll get into some deep dive on some interesting stuff here. My name is Scott Tolinsky. I'm a developer from Denver. And with me, as always, is Wes Boss. Hey, uh, it's funny looking at the the ad or the the calendar invite for this. I was like, Sean Wang. Oh, Swix. Uh, yeah. Your yeah. your screen name <laughs> is so well known, like it surpassed your actual name. <laughs> yeah, that isn't that that's that's interesting. This episode is sponsored by two amazing sponsors, Hasura and Log Rocket. Hasura is an amazing service to get a GraphQL uh, a, a GraphQL API spun up in just about no time with all sorts of excellent handy features and a ton of really great performance stuff, as well as LogRocket, which is the perfect place to see all of your errors and exceptions happen. All right, Sean, what's up? How you doing? I'm doing very good. I've been a longtime listener, so this is a dream come true for me. Nice. Do you want to give a little background about who you are, what you're doing, and uh, how you gained so many followers on Twitter so fast? Jeez. I'm not sure that's a good sign, to be honest. Um, So (laughs) I'm Sean, also known as Swix. Um, Those are my initials, in case anyone was wondering. And I just like it just because there tend to be other Seans, but there's only one other company named Swix and uh, it's, it's actually like a publicly listed German telco. And so my, and they, they own Swix.com and I have, I have the IO. Um, and so my, my joke is either I'll buy them or they, or vice versa. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. As somebody whose last name is Tolinsky, I really appreciate that you have a nice and easy digestible uh, handle to, to, for people to latch on to. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, my, uh, I am originally from Singapore. Um, shout out to any Singaporeans that are listening. Um, I moved over to the U.S. for college and did my first career in finance, where I did uh, investment banking and hedge funds. We can always talk about money and and uh, that wonderful world as well, if you're interested. Uh, but then I basically burned out at the finance part, and I really liked. Uh, I picked up coding along the side, and really wanted to get into that. So I did a career switch at uh, age 30, using nice. Free Code Camp, and then uh, taking a JavaScript bootcamp as well. Um, also, just taking a bunch of Wes, Wes's courses. Uh, so I had, <laughs> and, and this was round about the time that you guys are starting syntax as well. So like, I definitely remember, you know, sort of cramming my sort of nights and weekend free code camp classes while listening to you guys. So this is uh, this is sort of kind of full circle for me, to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that transition to JavaScript, like I, I had done a bit of Python, a bit of Haskell in, in previous jobs, uh, but JavaScript was the hardest language to learn by far just because it was so, there was so much incompatibility and so much confusion between frameworks and um, this is around about the transition to ES6 as well. Um, so there's just a lot of confusion as to like, what is the best practice and what should I learn? Um, so you, uh, I think, you know, resources like syntax definitely help us help people figure out like what the state of the nation is, you know, and I, I think that's definitely something that you see me try to do as well as a service to others. Heck yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I graduated uh, in New York and, and uh, was a front end engineer at Two Sigma, which is a well-known sort of quant hedge fund in New York. Um, and then, was the second Dev Relations hire in Netlify. That's where a lot of people know me for from because mm. I started speaking as well. So I think that's part of the hack, if, if it can be called a hack, which is get paid to speak and write. And therefore, you'll, you'll start to grow your own personal following as well as, uh, as part of your job. Um, <laughs> uh, after Netlify, I went to AWS and basically was a developer advocate for the AWS stack and AWS Amplify, working with Natter Dabit, who a lot of people in the React ecosystem are going to know. 
Um, and then I, I um, was very interested in sort of long-running jobs because I felt like that was one part of serverless, uh, the serverless ecosystem that was not well handled. So I wrote a blog post and that blog post eventually got me a job at Temporal as uh, head of developer experience there. So that's, um, and, and then finally, um, I just recently joined uh, Airbrite as also as head of developer experience in the data engineering field. Um, so that's, so basically the past five years, I've had some form of title of developer experience in my role. Uh, at Netlify, we called it developer experience engineer. And Sarah Drasner, our, our VP of developer experience, uh, sort of defined that role for us. And, and I thought it was a, Definitely a category-defining role that was a sort of early, a little bit early before its time, but now it's becoming a very hot topic. Nice. Yeah, we really need to get Sarah on the show. I'll have to... We have had her on once before, but have her back on. Sarah? No, we haven't. No. No, we've never had her on the show. Oh, um, you know what? We had her scheduled on and... Yeah, she never, to, yeah, never she had to out. reschedule, and we have not made that happen. So now, oh, now that yeah, we're doing these definitely. regular scheduled interviews, yeah, we'll get her back on the show, especially because I think her her book is, um, y- you know, in, in pre order and stuff. So we can have her on to talk about some of that stuff. Cool. So, developer experience um, is a word that uh, developers kind of hear around, right? You hear DX or developer experience around. What, what's your, what's your like plain English description for what the heck developer experience is? <laughs> well, the, the cheesy shortcut is that it's user experience for developers, but I find that Lovely. that is not super useful for <laughs> people who are trying to figure out like what translates and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think basically uh, developer experience is, and everything that tries to bridge the gap between the code and the human. Um, and I really like the talk that was given in 2017 by Cheng Lu, who was a part of the React core team and then moved to the Reason core team, uh, where he called, uh, where he called like, you know, there's, 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 there's the code base, which is the code that actually runs on the machine. But in order to make that code usable, you need documentation, you need uh, blog posts, you need tutorials, you need workshops, and all the way up to podcasts. Uh, it's meta stuff around the code that yeah. helps make the code more consumable. And I think that's essentially what developer experience is. It's kind of that the glue layer between the code and the human. Is that talk by any chance called on the spectrum of abstraction is is that you would does that sound about right? You said it was uh, taming the meta language is is taming a the that, meta uh, language. Okay, that's what I want. Right. Yeah. So the language being the 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 code and the meta language being the conversation about the code, uh, which is essentially documentation and blog posts and speaking and writing and all that all that good stuff uh, in in community. So uh, you know I do have like a mental model around how I organize developer experience, but. Uh, probably what one thing to note right off the bat is that it's a it's a very very trendy buzzword and therefore there are a bunch of people claiming uh, this term and so there the two camps uh, the first camp is sort of internal DX and and the second camp is external DX and I grew up within the sort of external DX side of things um, so what is what does this mean so internal DX is trying to improve the productivity of developers at your own company and external would be trying to Basically, working at a, a developer tools company, trying to improve the products for the developers outside to, to in other companies, um, and I think that would be my primary division. There, so a lot of people would be in one of those two organizations and not be aware of the other. Interesting. So, so would you define like a a tool like VS Code, right? It's our text editor that a lot of people use. Is VS Code considered like the tools within VS Code? Is that considered external DX? If I'm getting this correct, or is that is that way off? VS Code itself is a product. Uh, it's yep. it's something that you it, it's it's neither. So I, I, was, I was considering it neither. Uh, the activities that you do around that can be sort of internal evangelism or external, um, and that's where the division starts to melt a little bit, right? So I think there's always when you we start investigating something, you start to see the divisions, and then you start to see the similarities across all of them. So um, VS Code is definitely one of those where, like, yes, it probably improves the productivity of people at Microsoft, but it's products managed like a like a like an actual product for the the general sort of uh, Microsoft mindshare of the developer community, and uh, it's been one of the most successful ones at that. Cool. Um, let's talk about why is DX important. Like, if you maybe let's start talking about like internally to a product team. I have a buddy of mine who just just asked about that. So he's working on a, a new team at a company, and they're really trying to double down on DX. Like, like why would they do that for their their own developers? Why is that important? 
Yeah, um, honestly, because developer time is expensive. Based on the math, if you have 50 engineers and you think it's possible to improve their productivity by 1% a quarter, then you basically should have one to two engineers who are full-time not working on the product. They just focus on making everyone else more productive because just mathematically that just makes sense. And if you think about a lot of the repetitive stuff or the sort of infrastructural stuff that you always worry about like and but you never have time to do, having someone specialize in that and take uh, and, and try to deliver that internally as a service, I think is extremely valuable. And that that obviously makes sense when you have a 50 person company, but you know scale that up to a thousand person company and now you have a whole developer experience organization within your within your firm. The way to think about where you can improve your productivity, uh, there are a bunch of different places to do that. Uh, my favorite model is the Netflix uh, productivity engineering model. Uh, th that is the name of their team that, that they talk about on the Front End Happy Hour podcast, which is essentially, there are three major components, right? Think about going from new hire to productive local dev, which is sort of the boot camp and onboarding and bootstrapping tool. Um, and then from local dev to production, which is sort of their build, bake, and deploy paved role, like kind of like the CICD and, and uh, sort of deployment platform. And then from production back to dev, so it's like telemetry and uh, observability. Uh, so I think that's a really nice mental model to think about, right? What are the long running dev loops there? What, what are we doing a lot of manually just because no one's really thought about uh, automating it or making it more efficient? Um, and you can probably see a lot of opportunities to improve. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I think that spawned a couple of things for me. And one thing that, you know, kind of stuck out was like, we're talking about like production hours, productivity uh, across, you know, large organizations with a lot of, a lot of engineers. Is this a, is this a problem that is mostly found in large organizations or is this something that just kind of exponentially scales with um, the amount of developers that you're working with? I do think it scales up and it starts to become really serious money with larger organizations. Um, but even on a single person team, like obviously there's there's that XKCD chart that's super famous about how much time are you spending in doing something individually versus automating it and, and where that trade-off matters. And I think there's some part of like, okay, being able, being able to make that trade-off uh, for yourself or for your small team, but also... A lot of what developer experience and developer tools do is they move the boundary of what becomes a feasible trade-off and what is not. Mm. Uh, and I think I think expanding the possibility of like what is you know what what, is, what that boundary is I think is, is super useful. Uh, so I'll give I'll give one very very relatable example, which is the move from React being a custom-built uh, app every single time in sort of the pre twenty sixteen era uh, to create React app right mm -hmm. where you can just run one command and you had a Re React app. That was probably the single biggest developer experience upgrade uh, in the history of React. Um, and that was just one person, like, it's it's Danny Bramov and Christopher Shadow, like, just hacking on it on <laughs> one day and then releasing it to uh, the broader React community. And everyone's productivity just massively improved by, by that. So, like, I, I thought it was difference. a... Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah it makes a difference. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's now a little bit old hat just because uh, time has passed and uh, trends have moved on. But I, I still think about that often is, is like, how, how can you find that one wedge by which you can drive productivity because everyone is doing the same thing over and over and over again and you really don't have to. I, you think Versal is probably one of the top leaders in that area of, of DX? Just like all of their products is just like, oh man. Like I, I feel like uh, Guillermo and all the people that work at Versal are all like, this should be easier or this should be more enjoyable to use. And um, I just wanted to like... There's lots of companies that do this type of stuff, but I feel like their stuff is just like they go, they are aggressively DX in terms of like, how can this be as easy and as enjoyable to work on? Yeah. Yeah. The, the term that they've started adopting for it is they call it building an SDK for the web, mm. uh, which is like, okay, like, what are you talking about? The web has standard <laughs> APIs. Why, why do you need an SDK for it? Uh, and what's inside you do <laughs> for for a lot of small things, and especially when uh, the bar for what a good website is keeps getting moved by Google, uh, and they conveniently have very good relationships with Google to yeah, right, to yeah. help you uh, to reach those uh, things. But you kind of need it, you know, as as a developer with like way too much going on, like you just need a production ready web framework. And it turns out Next.js is uh, by far the the most uh, well developed uh, one out of out of all of them. Uh, I will say the other thing that Next.js does well, but uh, but DX 
is they don't give you too much, too many integration points. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I found, for example, comparing Next.js with Gatsby, um, the, the API surface area is small, just like React's API surface area is small. And I think that design philosophy of parsimony, which is not too much, not too little, just giving you enough building blocks to express the 90% of use cases that you, that you really want to do, that's good enough because uh, most people are don't have that complicated of needs um, and they, they need a paved path to uh, to to figure things out and to, they need they need to know they need to not learn like a whole universe of apis just to get stuff done parsimony that's can we can we talk about parsimony for a second that's a good word oh it's a it's a beautiful word. i have never used that word before it, it comes from my statistical training so parsimony in statistical models and machine learning is all yeah. about trying to f- balance the trade-off between overfitting a curve because like you, if you want to make a predictive model you you want to the you're just naturally going to get more and more of a fit the more variables you throw at it but the more you do that the more you're going to overfit and uh actually just uh, model something that doesn't that isn't really there in the data uh, so parsimony is, is this kind of rule that like if this additional data set, uh, if, if this additional data point doesn't really add that much, then just throw it out. Even though it technically improves your overall uh, f- fit to the to the to the, to the data set, like it's not really carrying its weight. And that's kind of what I think about when in terms of API design as well. Like um, when it when you want to keep a small API surface area, you should have parsimony in your sort of design principles. Man, that's it. it kind of sounds like to me like a type of fruit tea. I would get. I'm going to go to the Boba <laughs> tea shop and get some parsimony, mm-hmm. parsimony tea. Parsimony, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it it kind of seems like a lot of this is just about productivity. It, is productivity like the main focus or is there, um, you know, I, I kind of border between like we have these ideas of, you know, you have to be super productive all the time and here are these things to make us more productive. But there's also like, to me, I guess, an aspect of like, joy in what you're doing to have it be easy do, does do you think it follow, follows like pretty much into productivity or, or is this a much larger than that i think productivity is the base like is the economic layer of reasoning if like you need to explain to the bean counters that's the thing that makes sense to them but really as creators what we care about is creativity is is about that staying in flow and whenever you have a process that takes you out of flow um, you start to get distracted and you start to lose your uh, connection with the problem um, and it starts to be very disruptive. So th- there's a lot of sort of uh, intangible cost that comes with very slow dev cycles. Um, I should also mention, by the way, uh, that the other very popular mental model for breaking down developer productivity is the Accelerate metrics uh, by Nicole Forsgren. Um and also known as the Dora metrics for anyone uh, trying to look up uh, the, 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 the literature on this literature on this. <laughs> Adora? Okay. Uh, yeah. Dora, D-O-R-A. Oh, D-O-R-A. Like oh, nice. yeah. yeah. We just got a, a <laughs> Dora the Explorer um, toy for my my child and they're like speaking Spanish already. So shout out to Dora the Explorer. <laughs> There's so little in software that actually has good empirical research. So the reason that people really like the Accelerate metrics is that they actually did the hard work of studying a bunch of uh, software engineering organizations. And this is backed by academic and empirical research. So uh, I really like like, promoting that as much as possible. But it's also really hard because who knows, like what applies uh, to a bunch of findings uh, for a few hundred companies may not apply to you. Right. It's it's a social technical uh, uh, thing rather than like a law of physics. Okay, so. uh, the other thing, sorry, I, I kind of lost my, my no, train sorry. of thought there. Yeah, what, yeah, I, 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 I derailed us. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, the other thing about productivity, okay, we talked about productivity leading into creativity, right? The ability to play. Uh, and probably the best uh, talk about this is Brett Victor's Inventing in Principle, uh, where he showed you the effects of what happens when you reduce the distance between what you're writing, what you're coding, and you're seeing the results, right? And, and having that direct connection actually really helps you um, appreciate like what the impact of your code is uh, when, when you're playing directly and, and having direct manipulation on your on your end result. For a lot of code, especially back-end code, you can never have that. But basically, every order of magnitude improvement in uh, your, your latency uh, increases your productivity and play. Um, and it unlocks a whole different set of use cases that you never really thought of before. Um, so I, I, I do like that mental model of like, how can we 
improve by orders of magnitude the, the feedback loop. And then finally, I think it's, this is very hard to document, but there are documented examples of people admitting to people like Gergay Oros, who is uh, who, who's the author of the Pragmatic Engineer, the a re- really popular newsletter that's uh, mm-hmm. reporting on job trends in the industry. They're like, you know, there's there's all talk about like the great resignation and like, uh, you know, software engineer salaries uh, going uh, up into the right. But really, the reason I left my company is just because I didn't feel productive. I hated the tooling that we have at our current company. So it's a retention tool. <laughs> yeah, if you, right. If you just hate your tools that that like the people that people at your company force you to use. You can leave any time because there's a there's another company that with a better set of tools out there. I gotta say, you know what? On a, a side note, you know, I don't know how much we'll get into Svelte on this podcast specifically, but we had a developer who whose salary was going to get doubled with a job offer he had received, and he was like, "I'm I'm sorry that like." I, you can't match your salary. I really don't want to leave your Svelte code base and go to work back in <laughs> React again. I really don't want to, but I have to wow. take this job. And I was thinking like, all right, our, our code base is almost worth <laughs> that kind of bump in a salary. <laughs> it made it hard. Yeah, it made it yeah hard. that somebody would prefer to, to work in, in not only our code base, but Svelte specifically over it. Totally. Um, let's actually take a quick minute to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Hasura, which actually uh, fits really nicely into this conversation, yeah, considering no they're kidding. all about uh, making some of the pain points of getting a GraphQL API just that much more ironed out. In fact, Hasura is one of those things where they gave us a little quick demo. Wes and I got a nice little demo on some Hasura features. And we were both pretty shocked at just the ease in which uh, they were able to get all sorts of uh, multiple data sources, relations, authentication, all of these things. And also like they they had emails sending to us in a demo in just about a couple of couple of minutes. So it was all very fascinating to see just how quickly you can get stuff up and running. Well, Hasura is a cloud-managed GraphQL service providing auto-scaling and high, avail- high availability. Uh, it gives you a ton of nice little features so that you can do things like subscriptions with no effort. It connects to uh, your data sources with ease, whether that's uh, Postgres or any of the Postgres family of databases. And it auto-generates your GraphQL API right away. You can get started just with no time whatsoever. And you can have all of your services right there with you, GraphQL and or REST. Um, it's just a really great service. So check it out. What you're going to do is head on over to hasura.info forward slash free trial. The coupon code is tryhasura and you'll get three months of Hasura Cloud Standard. And only the first 100 people uh, who who sign up get this offer. So give it a try. Hasura, I, I was actually just on Hasura's website today working on a, a demo with my GraphQL library. So shout out to Hasura for making the process of having a GraphQL API that much easier. I want to talk more about um, React um, specifically. So like you use, are you a React developer, right? We saw you at Reactathon. You use React, right? I, I still, I, I'll still do, I still do React from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your what's your framework of choice? Because like we're here, we are talking about DX, um, and like, let's talk about use effect for a second. You know, like what ooh, what's ooh, your ooh, thoughts ooh. on React? <laughs> Just Wes going right for the jugular, <laughs> right for the jugular. I'm going to be canceled here, uh, but we're okay. Like, okay, well, I mean, we're a few minutes into the podcast, so only the true fans are here. Now. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> if, if you have strong feelings about use effect, you love it. Please, now it's time to to leave, step out of the room for a minute. <laughs> um, well, no, I think I think the the reacts. Uh, Community is very ready to move on. Even the the core team is ready ready to move on for use effect. Um, so, uh, my official stance is Svelte for sites and React for apps, uh, and that is not a very popular uh, opinion among uh, people. But essentially, that is the right balance for me in terms of productivity and uh, the ability to ship stuff quickly. So, and, and, that, and that's primarily the, the thing that I care about. Um, so, React, you know, I, and I've I was around for that. Uh, transition to to hooks and hooks are the greatest thing to happen to React since React. The one thing that React has always struggled with is that it tries to force a functional paradigm onto a fundamentally mutable and imperative um, substrate, which is what Rich Harris calls it. Right, <laughs> there is an impedance mismatch, and that was all shoveled under the hood in use effect. Uh, and unfortunately, that was something that people had to be forced to to use. 
maybe could have used a little bit more time to bake because it turns out that uh, parts of it are not uh, parts of the so those design design decisions, particularly the dependency array, were not technically necessary. You could see Vue yeah. and Solid and other other frameworks sort of taking the the best of the hooks uh, design paradigm, but then uh, avoid the dependency array. I think I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. But also uh, with use event, which is the new API that is being proposed by React, you can see some of that uh, being avoided as well. So um, I just think like it's a very interesting evolution. Uh, I not I, I I'm far from saying that I could have done any better, but I do think that it has probably created a lot of foot guns by people. Yeah, and uh, the the people that you know, write these super long blog posts about like how to deal with use effects and, you know, what the best practices are. You kind of miss the forest with the trees because there's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome with React where like, ah, I, I, I'm like sort of the consultant that like understands how to use these, these APIs. Really like maybe should, they just shouldn't be that hard to use in yeah, the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, that's always been a there's big something thing for to be me. Said. Yeah. It's like, it, why is it so easy to have an infinite re-render, like why is it so easy to do that? And why do people have to have that knowledge? Or why is it so what why does it require so much effort to memoize things or have different you now you have to right. have a different use effect for if you're dealing with server-side code? There's like so many little gotchas that probably have fueled that like 20 probably fueled like a whole tutorial series from myself like right why do i have to do a 20 video tutorial series <laughs> on this thing that that should be just a little bit easier for for the user and you know i had that same feeling when i came to react in the first time because when i came from angular one a one four or something. I was thinking like, why is this all so hard when it was a little bit easier, albeit not as not as good. And then once you get used to React, you're like, oh yeah, it's it's a little bit more difficult because of these following reasons, but you get these benefits out of it. And then like you said, eventually that kind of Stockholm syndrome. Now now it's kind of been elaborated upon and invented upon, and now we have systems that have all the benefits but are easier. So why are we using? the harder yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. We have that a lot. We should do a whole show, Scott, throw it on the books of not necessarily just books. react. Like I'm not going to keep yeah. them. Um, but more just in general, like, you know, the, the people say these things like only animate transform and CSS. Like why, yeah. why can't, you know, like, because <laughs> it's more performant. Okay. Only uh, interfaces are faster than types in TypeScript. So use an interface. Why, you know, like, like why do it for me? Why do it for me? I don't <laughs> do want to do me. it. <laughs> Do it for me. That's the name of the show. <laughs> I already made it. Made the card. Do it for me. Yep. I hear you. Right. Yeah. Th that's a lot of like what developer experience is, right? Like, uh, so I have this sort of mental model of DX as like, starting from product, going out to docs, going out to blog posts and content and community uh, at the at the at the outermost layer. Sean, I gotta over, I gotta interrupt you really quickly here. Yeah. You you transition directly into my next question without even seeing <laughs> oh. our notes here. So uh, please please continue <laughs> as we talk about the radiating circles of DX as you call it. Correct? Is that <laughs> is that where you're going to? That's that was my next question. So I'm glad you went there. I'm just trying to respond to Wes's discussion, which is essentially like you have to design for a pit of success. Like API design is really at the core. If you screw up the API design, no amount of good docs, no mm -hmm. amount of good blog posts can really fix that, right? Like at the end of the day, like if you've made Actually, if you if you made a bad API design choice, like you actually cause a lot more load on your community, a lot more load on your on your documentation and your uh, and your blog posts, just to make up for the fact that you made a, the wrong decision on the API design. Uh, and I'm, also, I'm not saying like use effects was wrong because they had they had other priorities at the time, but like a lot of API design and a lot of developer experience um, decision making is a lot about getting people to fall down the pit of success. And um, that is a very famous blog post by Jeff Atwood, uh, who is a co-founder of Stack Overflow. I, I, it's funny because this kind of does fall also into another thing that Wes and I were just talking about earlier today. We just recorded an episode on viewport units. And because of the decisions made with the original CSS oh, viewport units, there was initially four <laughs> viewport units, and we now have 16 <laughs> viewport units, 16 different viewport <laughs> units. So if the right API would have been chosen in the first or the, I guess, the yeah, the right API, then we wouldn't be having to deal with what are the difference between 16 different viewport units now? Um, yeah, that totally greatly illustrates that. Well, so I would say that it's easy for people like us sitting on a podcast to criticize, 
right? Totally. Like, yes. Th- that's the tricky <laughs> thing. It's like, oh, you know, we yeah, have magic knew wand. we were being able to fold a phone, you know? <laughs> it's the best part about my job is that I can just, I can just criticize it without having to deal with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the people who work on these products, they'll, they'll, their response to you would be, there's a fundamental complexity that cannot be erased, right? That, that is, uh, that is the response there. And a lot of times when I, I sit at the, uh, at the intersection between users and the people working on the the core product, I have to basically trade those off and and try to convince people on either side that they made the right choice or, or to guide them towards something that the other side will accept. Um, and th- that is a fundamental tension in working in DX, which is like what part of fun what what part of your API design is essential complexity to use a Fred Brooks term, and what part is accidental complexity, and how much mm-hmm. can we move that accidental complexity away just by clever design? Um, and so, some part of it you can you can deal with, and some part of it you just have to document a lot. <laughs> and that's yeah. what happened with viewport <laughs> units. Uh, no matter how much you document things, uh, there'll always be something that goes wrong and you'll probably hit some errors and exceptions. Wes, this is the first time that Wes gets to do a log rocket ad read. So I'm, I'm interested to hear this. Wes, oh, I've what do you- done them. I haven't done them in a while. Scott usually takes them, but let me do one here. Log rocket. They do. We've heard a million times us talk about log rocket and they have a JavaScript scrubbable replay. And we, we generally frame it in the, in the point of view where they're, they're tracking like, issues that happen on your thing but you can use log rocket for a little bit more than that they're really kind of getting into this is that um since log rocket does a great job at tracking what's going on on your website with your users you can do um you can use log rocket to drive product adoption and engagement so if you want to know uh where are people dropping off on your website are people scrolling down far enough to that point are they <laughs> clicking the right elements that you want what ha- like 20% of the people aren't actually buying it why you know like what did they click and when did they when did they drop off is it when they saw they didn't they weren't able to see how much shipping was before entering their email looking at you shopify stop doing that um all kinds of information like that you can drill down you can create funnels um basically you want to you want to sell more stuff you throw log rocket on your website uh, and you can use that data to figure out um, and convert engage and retain all of your customers so we want you to check it out at logrocket.com forward slash syntax. I'm going to get you 14 days for free. Thank you, Log Rocket, for sponsoring. How was that, Scott? It's excellent. Just as good Thank as it gets. Um, <laughs> it's very good. Okay, so we talked a little bit about, is it internal DX? That's what that's what you refer to it as. Let's talk a little bit about external DX. What's the, what's the difference here? And what are, we, uh, what are we getting into when we talk about external DX? Right, so I think that is what is going on with developer relations in general, which is that people are rebranding themselves from just a glorified marketing arm to something mm. that is a little bit more comprehensive. And I'll tell you why. I, like, so like, part of this is just people trying to rebrand themselves into something grander, right? Just as part of just general career progression. But it's real in the very real sense that I, as a developer advocate, get to talk to people all the time and get to fear, feel their frustration. Um, and the best that I can do is write blog posts to try to solve it. Right. I can feed some I can feed some feedback back to the docs and to the product team, but I don't actually have any direct influence. Um, so in other words, the people who are most speaking to users the most um, don't have have the least power to actually impact any uh, it, it have any impact on the on the product that fundamentally changes it. Um, and uh, I think this really drove drove it home for me when you know I realized like there's not a, there's no single blog post that I can do that everyone will read, but everyone will probably read the docs, right? So mm. the people who who work on the docs and the people who work on the products just have way more impact uh, to the ultimate developer experience uh, than developer relations. And if I ever wanted to solve something end to end for customers, then I should probably try to have more influence over something that's more core into the product. Um, so I think the smarter developer tools companies are reorganizing in recognition of that. Uh, for example, Nellify, um, now uh, docs and integrations report directly into develop- the developer experience team. Um, and another interesting phenomenon that's happening with developer relations is that uh, they want to keep them sharp as engineers. So with mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Nellify and, and with uh, Airbyte, my current company, like we'll, spend, we'll have our writers and our developer advocates spend a quarter of their time 
like three months out of the year working as engineers on the product. Um, so, uh, and I think interesting. Yeah. that keeps them sharp as engineers. But also, once they've worked on the the thing that they really, you know, really, really wanted to fix, then they can go out and evangelize it. Yeah, that is it is interesting because there are still some companies where the the DevRel position definitely feels like it, like you said, it's an extension of the marketing arm, right? They're they're just there yeah. to to connect, but. Really, what we're we're trying to do here is get the developers who are using the thing <laughs> to have a, a little bit better understanding of it, and and I think there there's definitely a big difference when the companies get that. I think in, in terms of the, what kind of output they're able to do. Yeah, and just to be clear, like it's okay to be marketing, right? Sure. Because yeah. traditional marketers are terrible at talking to developers. Uh, so getting real developers to, to talk to other developers is a win anyway. <laughs> if you could just tell me what it is you do, that's yeah. a win. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and then just to round it out a little bit as to like what the cutting edge is in terms of developer experience, um, a lot of uh, developer advocacy and dev relations is one to many, like you're broadcasting as much as possible, trying to uh, be that sort of that person that uh, goes to every conference or writes uh, writes a blog post that goes to the top of Hacker News. But really, I think uh, what people are finding is more scalable is uh, many to many conversations, which is building community uh, and having uh, totally. people find each other and do local meetups and uh, and solve problems that way and, and build a whole ecosystem around your product. So I think that is something that I'm personally very interested in. And that's why I do, I have side projects like Building Spot Society. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I love that. Do you, okay. So one of the, the pillars of, of your career kind of has been this learning in public thing that you've been doing, right? Yeah. Where you're yeah. often sharing what you're learning. You're you're posting a lot. You're, you're not only just posting helper blog posts here and there, but like really letting people know what, what you're learning. Is that something you recommend for a lot of developers or is it, does it take a, a special kind of person to do that type of learning in public? <laughs> I definitely don't say that it is suitable for everybody uh, because it does take some time and some people are more vulnerable than others um, and they should take necessary precautions. But I, for every type of profile or background, I can point to people who successfully learn in public. And I think it benefits your career so much that it is worth it to at least try. Um, so it's definitely something that I have benefited from, you know, for, for, what, for what it's worth, it's not my idea. You know, like, uh, I got it from Kelsey Hightower and the earliest incidents that I can find yeah. is people who wrote about learning in public uh, at NASA uh, back in the, the early 2000s. Um, so you might as well learn how rocket scientists learn, which is share <laughs> what you learn, get corrected. And if you, whatever you get wrong, you, you'll remember it for life because people will crawl over broken glass to fix you, to, to yeah. correct you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we all know about that. Uh, yeah, and, and I think, you know, you guys as developers, like, you know, doing this podcast, like, I'm sure every time you get something wrong, you'll hear about it, right? And and that feedback loop is so is so solid because uh, that really helps you f uh, hone your craft. But it also is really inspiring for people who are also like trying to, who look up to you and see that you make mistakes and, uh, and see that, you know, like everyone uh, has parts of their knowledge that, it, that they're, they're um, still working on. And so I think it's just a very inspirational path to, to lead. Yeah, totally. I, I 100% agree with you. We're, we're actually starting a kind of a, a, a video blog right now for our new site. And it's like things that we're learning as we're building it. Um, oh, yeah. It's a big Svelkit app. There's you know a lot of little things. But even like the latest video I did was about how CSS filter totally tanked our, our, our frame rate on the site. Performance, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just totally, I mean, I was getting one second to paint the site and it was just from <laughs> CSS Blur. I, I, I commented out that line and it, it completely fixed everything. And that was across browsers. And so it's like really important. Like, I, I totally agree with you that like being able to share that information ego free to say, this is something I learned as a bug that I hit um, or this is just something I learned while I was exploring is exceedingly powerful and other people are going to find value in that. And they, you know, maybe it's one person, maybe it's, 200 people, maybe it's 2,000 people, you never know. And it, it's great to put that out there, right? And in talking to the user, I, I, I think I've been in those exact shoes where like, I hear people who are, who've kind of made it say that, oh yeah, I, I'm vulnerable all the time. I'm showing my mistakes and, and you know, it's, it's totally okay for you to do it. But like, there's a huge cognitive, cognitive difference between you guys doing it and, and, and the people who are, who are just starting out because uh, your credibility is not in question. Um, and so you can, uh, so Dan Abramov gets to write things I don't know. 
and it's it's a fantastically celebrated blog post, but he's already Dan Abramov. Like, where's, where's <laughs> yeah. the Dan yeah, as right, of like yeah. 10 years ago uh, <laughs> that was just starting out, right? Like, so to the people who are just starting out, I, w- I would say uh, there are ways to learn in public that, you know, recognize that, you know, you are, you are just learning this as you go along. Uh, but, and you should not be an overnight expert, but you can you should still feel free to share uh, as you go along. And, you know, there, there's a lot of people on, especially on Twitter, um, some uh, on on practical dev like dev dot two, uh, who do that, who who are who are trying to engage in that process, and I think you're you're totally welcome to try this out. Uh, I will also say that there's some people who feel more vulnerable, particularly uh, minorities in tech, um, who will be judged. They they just they just are. They will totally, be judged yeah. just because of who they are and who they present to be um, if they make a mistake. And so for those, there are there are people like you who work harder at, at not showing so much of the raw work, but just the final product. Uh, and sh- but just putting it out there consistently, just doing a bit more work before you you put it out there, uh, guides guards you a little bit from that negative uh, feedback as well. You know, there's there's nuance here, and, and I could go into a whole conversation about this, but I just want to speak to those people who often hear this stuff and then they they just feel like they can't do it. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely um, a, a lot there, and I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, Wes, do you want to get into the questions now? Is that where we want to yeah. go? Yeah. Okay. Let's jump into some of our questions. This is a new kind of section of the Supper Club where we ask people uh, the same set of questions over and over again to see what they do. Uh, first one is, what computer are you using? I am using an M1 Max MacBook Pro 2022 with the MagSafe with no touch bar. It's just got all the goodies that we've been denied for the past five years. The old one, it, they just released like... What? 20 minutes ago, they just released the new M2 version. I haven't even Ooh, looked into it yet. But they just released yeah. M2? Oh, shit. Just, just for, <laughs> yeah. for MacBook Airs. MacBook Airs are M2, but yeah. Oh, just yeah. MacBook Airs. Okay. Well, I don't oh, think we it's MacBook Pros. Yeah. I've just, just been sneaking li- uh, sneaking looks on Twitter in between recordings. Okay. I, I just, you guys, you guys will appreciate this because you, you make video. So the, yeah. the new M1, uh, M1 Max, it compiles a one hour video in six minutes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So fast. If you use recut to recut your video, it'll export in like milliseconds. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, next one is text editor theme and font. Uh, VS Code. Uh, theme is actually, uh, well, Retrion, which was re- recommended to me by Scott. But yeah, I also want to like give Retrion. a shout out to Wes because you gave me the Agnostra theme from Oh My ZSH. Uh, and that's the one I use, and it's it's so it's so pretty. I haven't found anything better. It's just it's just the one I rock every so time. So good. What's the theme? Yeah, I don't... Agnoster. It's kind of like what my prompt is. You know, my prompt's got the Git I know that I forked yeah. Agnoster like six years ago. Oh. Uh, that's pretty much. It's like eighty percent or ninety percent Agnoster. So it's such a good prompt. I don't really like the colors. I'm sorry, guys. It's not <laughs> colors. It? It's the a, a prompt is not colors. A prompt. Oh yeah, is, you're right. Because I I have my color set up to be my own brand colors. Yeah, it's just term, like so. what info goes in your prompt. Yeah, I you know there was a prompt I really liked called Wild Cherry or something that had it was like a princess emoji and a skull emoji and I got oh, like yeah. really used to yeah. But then it looked really bad on recordings, so I've gone back to one of the, the you know the basic ones. Oh, one of the, the things you sacrifice for recordings. Yeah. Right, totally right. I can't have my princess and skull emojis on my my prompt <laughs> anymore. Um, what kind of keyboard do you use? I use a gaming keyboard I randomly found on Amazon. I don't doesn't have a brand name, but it's just an ergonomic keyboard. I'm trying to show it to you, but it's a podcast, so maybe not. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's an ergonomic <laughs> yeah. keyboard because I started having RSI issues, and it, so I I do recommend uh, people get a proper keyboard and do not type on your laptop keyboard as much as possible. I type on my laptop keyboard, but. Um, I don't have that's RSI the one issues, piece of RSI yeah. advice yeah. that everyone has. There's like, yeah, it's it's designed for portability, not your ergonomics. Yeah, to- mm-hmm. totally. We, yeah, I really want to get a split ergonomic one with the dials. And I saw someone had I forget who it is. So I'm apo- apologies if if you're listening to this right now. Somebody had their this is like a dream of mine. They had a, a split ergonomic keyboard with a dial on it, and the dial was rigged up to command Z and command undo and redo. Oh yeah, who was that? And so they were just like working on their code and they just twist the dial just a little bit to undo and it was an infinite (laughs) dial. It's like, that seems so stinking useful to have something like that. I would do that all day long. Um, Okay, if you had 
to start coding from scratch, which not not super recently, but you know, you did have a career change. If you're going to start today, like today is the day you're going to start your career change. What would you choose to learn? Knowing what you know now, not knowing what you didn't know. So I still recommend free code camp uh, because it's free, because there's a structured curriculum. Uh, it, it enabled me to try before I buy, right? Like to do things nice on weekends before I quit my job and, and go, go go to something full time. Uh, and then once you finish something like that, uh, try some of the paid courses. And and I, this is something that I've actually passed on as, as advice. Like if you have the money, don't try to do everything free because I, I think that's there's a mental barrier for people tr- to pay for stuff. Like actually try to pay for ah, stuff because hey, the, the paid stuff is really good. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Um, and I mean, both of you have like sort of free tier stuff, right? So people can actually see, yeah. uh, you know, get a yeah. taste of, of your teaching styles. And that's super important. But uh, ultimately, like the, the really good stuff is tends to be paid just because that's where people are very, very motivated to try to create uh, really good courses. And uh, so that's where I would start. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Egghead.io and Free um, and Front End Masters, because I think those are two of the best, uh, uh, you know, tutorial and programming sites. Yeah. yeah shout third out to Quincy yeah. from Free Code Camp. It's such a great, great resource. He wants to he wants to make a, a fully accredited university. He wants to give a he wants to oh, yeah. like that's his big hairy audacious goal, which is a CS degree from an accredited US university for free. For free. Yeah, what a champion. That's awesome. That's unreal. Did we have him on the podcast? No, but I, 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 I talk to him somewhat regularly, so I can shoot him a DM and see if he wants to come on. I yeah. I feel like we have. Maybe I was on there. We talked to him in person at um, a couple of conferences. A number of, I've number of yeah, I've had oh, I've yeah. had dinner with him a couple times. Yeah, like yeah, those. we definitely yeah. need to have him on. That's that's awesome. Yeah, he's got some. He he's like next level like thinker. You know, like here we are. Just he's a next level Scott, cool dude. Course. Next level thinker. Yeah, no, yeah, totally awesome dude. All right, next question we have here um, is how do you stay up to date? <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, also, and, yeah. And, and yeah. podcasts, you know, honestly, like, uh, uh, I think those two are sort of the, the main information diet, at least uh, in terms of keeping up to date with what people are releasing. But also just once you're involved in the conference scene, just paying attention to what people are speaking about and excited about. I think mm-hmm. that's a really useful thing because conference organizers try really hard to curate, uh, you know, a good set of topics for people, for their attendees. So you might as well just pay attention to that. What What's something that you're really excited about in the future of web development overall? Big, big old giant topic. Ooh, meaty Anything. topic. Yeah. Uh, so I call this the smart server versus smart client debate. Uh, and I have a blog post about, about this, uh, basically saying, why do web developers keep trying to kill REST? Right, like there's there's all these alternatives to REST, like GraphQL, like React Server components, like Phoenix Live View, um, and it's it's just a moving target as to like what the client server contract should be, uh, and I think it's probably the most interesting debate in my mind uh, about how we do these do this sort of architecture because we're improving on the server rendering side a lot, but also don't uh, forget that the, the client side is also improving with uh, SQLite and uh, you know, like local data stores uh, with with um, uh, React Query and Apollo um, caching all your data. There's there's a, there's something here where people can choose essentially to render on the client optimistically or to render on the server with minimal JavaScript. And I think that's a very interesting debate. I'm actually curating a talk track at QCon in San Francisco about this. Uh, so uh, it's something that is that's, that's pretty interesting uh, that, that people are picking up on. When it, when it, when is that happening? I think it's in November, and it's the first okay. time I've been I've been like the curator instead of the speaker. So I just I just get to MC and and, and invite a bunch of people I respect to to come give talks uh, about you know the stuff they're working on. Um, but I think it's really cool because I think that this is really moving the the barrier. Like another framework that is like slightly better in terms of component API design, not really going to rock my world. But if you're telling me that I <laughs> I can get optimistic updates off the bat, or if you're telling me that I'm not shipping any JavaScript, uh, it, you know just by switching a little flag uh, in terms of my components, like that is something that's material uh, to my users and therefore to me. Totally. Yeah, it, it seems like um, it's one of those things that is going to shake itself out 
quite dramatically in the next couple of years here, considering how many different things, as you mentioned, are, are getting floated or, or coming coming around. So um, it'll be really interesting to look back on this conversation in a couple of years from now and see kind of where where things currently are living in that space. Yeah, this is the third issue of JavaScript. Lots of new stuff <laughs> <laughs> being mixed in. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Professional um, plug okay. right there. That was great. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I should take some clips of this and I put on my resume. <laughs> uh, is there anything that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to touch upon before we wrap it up? No, I think I think um, you guys have been uh, you know really really awesome hosts. Um, I, I do I do often drop this at the end of uh, podcasts uh, that I that I do with front end engineers. Um, I do also think there's a meta game moving on with front ends becoming full stack. And yeah. front end engineers yeah. uh, running into a career ceiling if they only do front end, uh, because how many VPs of Eng do you know with a front end background? Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that many uh, VPs of engineering at any places, but I could imagine that that those those skills. I don't know. <laughs> there there is something like really interesting about that conversation in general, where you know where front end skills have always kind of been looked down upon, even though yeah. So important and necessary, yeah. It, it makes sense. Like you, you think about like um, people that have been around for fifteen years. Uh, Brian Larue, we had on the podcast. Uh, ben Vinegar, we had on the podcast. Um, trying to think of who comes to mind, but like all of those guys are are full stack, right? And yeah. like they know their JavaScript cold, but th- they also like are running <laughs> companies that that run on the server as well. So. I, I think I agree with that. Maybe that's a, a podcast episode we need to do is that like front end is the new full stack or something something around there. You should have Chris Coyer for that one. He's he's uh, he's done a bunch of talks and blog posts about it. Oh, really? Sounds like a okay. dr- yeah, well, let's get Chris on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we cool. got a direct line. It, All right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, now is part of the show where if you brought a sick pick. Did you bring a sick pick, Sean? Uh, not yet, but I can think of something. <laughs> okay. All right. I got to say, uh, there was um, it was a while back when I was on the Svelte podcast for the first time. You picked the Stormlight Archives as mm-hmm. a, a book series. I just started listening to that maybe like three months ago just because I was looking for something new. I'm I'm a total nonfiction book person. I got through the first like three books already. Gotta say, I really loved it. Yeah, so far. I mean, I'm not done with it, obviously, but uh, really loved it. Yeah, it's, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, one of the, I think people are really interested in the sort of epic fantasy fiction and people are kind of waking up to Brandon Sanderson being one of the greatest authors, uh, at, least, at least living. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe how prolific he is. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. I'm actually passing on that pick from Ken C. Dodds, who is the biggest fan. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, there was, I, I, what got me hooked is he did like a, end of COVID kind of video reveal where he'd like talked about his Kickstarter. And, how, and I watched that video and I was like, this guy's brilliant. I need to listen to these books right away. So yeah, shout out to He had the top to, Kickstarter of all time. It's unbelievable. Uh, launching four books. Who reads books? What? I was cracking <laughs> up at that video too. Just like, him. well, I wrote another book and they're just like, oh my God, how many books can you write, man? <laughs> Uh, what about shameless plugs? What do you got for us to plug? Uh, shameless plugs. I guess uh, I'll plug my book. If anyone is interested in learning in public and any career advice for me, I have a small little community where we go through career topics after you get your first job. Uh, it's at learningpublic.org. Nice. Cool. I'll make sure that that gets into the uh, show notes here. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Sean. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back because it was funny when you, when, when I first messaged you, you're like, what, 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 what do you want to talk about? I got all these no, different no, no, no. things to talk about. <laughs> I was like, well, let me pick one of them. Um, and then, <laughs> so we can definitely hit some other things next time and we'll have you back for sure. So thanks so much for coming on, Sean. It was, uh, it was absolute pleasure and, um, I appreciate re- it. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Peace. 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 Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.